Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You may be seated. Well, Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. I'm going to pray for us. Pray with me. God, thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that You've given us uh, the text that Merrimack just read, and we pray that your spirit would speak to our spirit this morning, that we would be captivated by this vision and uh, this image that we have here in Revelation chapter 7, that you would wake us up, that you would invigorate our hearts and our souls. Lord, if we come this morning and, and we're tired or we're exhausted, we're discouraged, if we're bored, if we think life is just okay, would you stir our hearts to you this morning? And would you meet us where we are? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Thank you that you're with us and we need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a series titled Renew, the glory of God and the good of Durham. We're preaching through the vision of Christ Central Church and the core values that, that we hold on to. And I said last week that Christ Central Church must be intolerant on the five core values. We must not waver on being grace-centered, worship-driven, which we've preached on both of those, cross-cultural, outward service, and kingdom catalyst. These values are what matter most to us. Then they must direct how we behave as a church. So this morning, we're going to look at the core value of cross-cultural. Before we can begin to understand the value of being cross-cultural, we have to understand this word culture. I think it's a word that's lost its meaning for many of us. It's a buzzword, and we don't often know what we mean by it. And so to understand culture, I think we have to understand the sociological definition, a, a, a very common definition, uh, that there's three things that are true of culture. It's behaviors that are learned, ideas that reinforce beliefs and values, and third, products that reinforce beliefs. 
That's what a culture is. It obtains those three things. And every person in every corporate body, whether it be a family, a team, a company, an institution, has these three things, therefore has a culture. It's why it's popular to talk about the culture at work or the culture of the home or the culture of the church. Another way we can use this word culture is as an adjective. Right? We can say he or she is so cultured. Right? I don't know if you've said that before, but Suchan Rod notes that using culture as an adjective in this way can lead to the gradation of culture, meaning that certain forms of culture are viewed as higher than others. Becoming cultured means someone has acquired one particular culture. They are now cultured. Kenneth Myers, in his book, All God's Children and Blue Suede, Blue Suede Shoes, names and defines this gradation. Maybe you've heard this before. He says there's high culture, then there's folk culture, and there's low culture. High culture is culture rising from European heritage, the music of Bach, the artistry of Rembrandt, the, it's classical music, it's ballet. Folk culture are things like African drumming, Korean fan dancing, Native American jewelry. Low culture is pop culture, it's things like Justin Bieber, and Kendrick Lamar, it's television that's not masterpiece theater, right? It doesn't take much logic to see what grading culture like this does. It sets European Western culture as better than the others, as the culture that is closest to God's plan for creation. It's superior, which lends itself to all kinds of explicit and implicit bias. Now, the way we've defined cross-cultural as a value in our church is this. We believe that all people are created in the image of God, therefore crowned with glory and honor. And we believe that the gospel of Jesus breaks down the barriers that our society creates, things like race and class. And through the gospel, God creates a unified community. It's important for us to see that the Bible gives an understanding of culture, that all people are created in the image of God, created with dignity. And all people are born under the sin of Adam, post-Genesis chapter 3. Therefore, all people are born broken and sinful. Therefore, every person and every culture is beautiful in ways and broken in ways. There is no gradation. If you've seen humans of New York, this is what they capture so well. And if you haven't, you need to check it out. They powerfully capture the dignity of all people. No matter the ethnicity, no matter the wealth or the poverty, they are capturing God's image in a person. There is no hierarchy in God's creation. And if we want to be a church that is truly cross-cultural, multicultural, we must pray that God rids us of thinking that there is one culture better than another culture. If one culture thinks that they can give handouts or hand-ups to people, we will fail from the beginning. To be truly cross-cultural, we must hand a cross. It must be equal. Realizing there is beauty and brokenness in every culture, therefore the opportunity to learn and receive and give from every culture. In the 1990s, Dr. Donald McGavern termed a church growth principle HUP homogenous unit principle. It was the fastest and best way to grow the church. 
is to have people that look the same, think the same, with the same culture in one church. And many churches, white, black, Latino, Asian, adopted this principle. And it was somewhat effective. Now, don't hear me knocking all white churches, all black churches, all Asian churches. God works and uses mono-ethnic churches. And I never want us to be a church that's arrogant and think that we're doing something better than other people. But many organizations can grow, grow through using HUP, the homogenous unit principles. Country clubs grow this way. Masonic lodges grow this way. Private nightclubs grow this way. Numerical growth using this method does not always mean God is at work. So what we're praying to be true here at Christ Central, this cross-cultural community will have to be an act of the Lord. I don't want us to grow either because of what I will term the DUP, diversity unit principle, because diversity nowadays is trendy, isn't it? Currently, schools, organizations, companies promote diversity. It's in to be diverse. Justin and I have joked before that we could get up here and sing the 1982 song, Ebony and Ivory, right? Living together in perfect, right? That's, that was my one time singing ever. So, or what if we played the 2004 Michael Jackson song, We Are the World, and we all just huddled up and we felt good about being multicultural. What we're praying happens here is not some cliche song, but an act of God. And I don't want us to have a facade of cross-cultural. I don't want us to be trendy and in. I want us to be reflective of God's heart and God's kingdom, which is what we saw in Revelation chapter 7. If you've ever had a dream before and you, you're experiencing something wonderful and you're in bed and, and you're trying to figure out as you wake up what's real uh, and you really want the dream to be real, you want to go back into the dream rather than in the, in the bed, be in the bed. Or, or maybe you've had a nightmare and you wake up and it takes you a while to realize you're safely in the bed, but the nightmare feels more real than the bed. If, you've, if that's ever happened to you. What we have in Revelation chapter 7 is a vision from John, the author of this book of Revelation, given to a people the church of Jesus Christ, who are headed into a nightmare. Persecution and suffering is on the way, and so John gives them, John gives us, God gives us this vision. Not of some nice dream, but of the heavenly reality, which for the church must be absolute and utter truth over and against the nightmares and sufferings that we will face in the world. The first thing that we have to see about this heavenly reality, this vision, is that it's a vision of family. Look at the text again. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This vision is the fulfillment of what God told Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 17. That Abraham, your descendants, your family, will be as many as the stars in the sky. And this great multitude is around the throne of the Lamb in the presence of God. One immeasurable, unified family made up of every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now Luke chapter 15 verse 10 tells us there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. Imagine the noise and the roar 
of a great multitude. Imagine standing on the top of the SunTrust building in the center of downtown Durham and looking out over our city and seeing people shoulder to shoulder as far north, south, east, and west as you can envision. And this great multitude crying out, singing, worthy is the Lamb. A unified family, a cross-cultural unified family. This is what's true. This is the vision that the church must hold on to in a world where suffering and nightmares are real. Because when suffering comes to certain cultures, like it has in the past few weeks, the past year or hundreds of years, and throughout the world in various ways, different cultures clash. What can rise in the human heart is you don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my family. You don't know me. And that voice, that feeling, is actually way more honest than singing ebony and ivory and we are the world and glossing over differences and hurt and pain. Being a family means we really know one another, that we really care about one another, but the truth is we don't always know one another, do we? Not sure how many of you have ever seen the now older movie Boys in the Hood starring a younger Ice Cube. I, wore, I watched it at a very early age, probably way too early. Uh, but the character Doughboy closes this movie with a one-line bomb when he's speaking for the boys growing up in the hood when he says this. He says, either you don't know or you don't show or you don't care about the boys in the hood. Amen. And what Doughboy was saying that's often true of many of us when it comes to other cultures is that we don't know and we don't show and we don't care. And we allow ourselves to remain ignorant. And we cannot remain ignorant. There are way too many opportunities to get to know one another. The first way we get to know one another is to learn history. Learn the history of people and their culture. As a man in the majority of culture, let me say to those of you in the majority of culture, we have so much to relearn about the history of our own country here in the U.S. and the realities of many minorities. And it's not hard to do this anymore. There are hundreds of books and movies and seminars and a thing called the Internet in which you can learn history. And we must learn history because history has impacted culture and therefore people's stories. If any of you are kind of starting to want to, who are in the majority are wanting to kind of say, well, it's 2016. Let's just get over it, right? Get over the history. It's 2016. That is devaluing. That is devaluing a person because you're devaluing their story. Learning generally is much needed, but it's not enough because behind general statistics and numbers are always individual people and their stories. So the second thing we need to do is we need to learn one another in real relationships. You can read and listen all day long, but everything changes when you get to know a person. I traveled to China. I've traveled over 10 times. Lived there multiple years. I love China. I remember one of my UNC students when I was doing campus ministry there and took a, took a group over. They told me, Daniel, I've never seen you so alive as when you're in China. Like, I love China. I hope we go to China as a church so that I can go again. But before 1996, I knew very little about China. I knew very few Chinese people. Started going in 1997. I, I lived there. I learned of the history. 
But more importantly, I became friends with Chinese people. I have a picture of three, my three best friends from China, and I still tear up when I look at the, at the photo. I love these guys. I love them. I have real friendships, and when I think about them, I think about China. That's why I love China. Listen, you can have a political view on immigration, but everything can change when you finally meet an immigrant. You can have certain views of Republicans or Democrats, but you get to know someone who's of a different political party, and you might just change how you view a Republican or a Democrat. You can have certain views of cultures, but everything changes when you finally get to know a person of that culture. Humility and eyes of wonder are required to do cross-cultural community. A humility with a willingness to learn and to receive from another. And eyes of wonder that looks to behold the good and the beauty in every person and in every culture. And there are many opportunities for us to build real relationships with people from various cultures. There are opportunities all the time in our city. Just yesterday, the Phoenix Festival happened right here. There are events every week that you could check out. There are opportunities in our church. There are these things called city groups, which you get to know real people in real relationship. We have socials, prayer on Wednesday mornings, meals that you could actually meet somebody on a Sunday morning and go, hey, you want to grab lunch after church? You want to grab lunch this week or dinner this week? There are many opportunities for us to get to know one another. Now, this sounds nice and neat, but it's hard. So let's go ahead and acknowledge that we, family, will hurt one another. We're going to hurt one another. You will probably say something or do something at some point that will offend another person of another culture. So they'll be hurt and pain as we learn one another, which is why we need this vision to help us endure the shame if we offend and to endure the pain if we're offended. This utterly true heavenly vision, one family under one heavenly tent with beautiful differences. This must fuel us to be proud of who we are in our ethnicity and in our language, for ethnicity will be in heaven, but also a people of great humility because it won't be only your ethnicity or only your language. The heavenly choral singing is not singing in all English or all Spanish, or all Swahili, or all Chinese. It's every language. A family united while having beautifully God-given differences. The second thing we see about this heavenly reality, which must be our vision, is that it's a vision of a victorious army. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? It's a rhetorical question because the elder then provides the answer. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation is the temptation and suffering that will come upon the people of God who live in a broken and fallen world. We all will go through this tribulation. And the people of God coming out of this great tribulation will be wearing white robes and waving palm branches, which are both biblical emblems of victory. This is a vision of a victorious army that has fought a bloody battle and won. It's an anthem of victory that we will sing, like the song Glory by John Legend and Common in the movie Selma. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. One day when the war is won, we will be sure, oh, glory. We will overcome. We will overcome. 
This vision of victory is much more true than the nightmares of oppression that we will face in our world. Overcoming and victory happen by the blood of the Lamb. Those washed in the blood are given white robes and palm branches. Jesus bled and suffered for the sin and oppression of our world. Verse 10 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation, which is personal forgiveness of sin, personally receiving the righteousness of Christ, which is this imagery of being clothed in white robes, but it's also justice for all people. Verse 15, there's no more hunger. There's no more thirst. There's no more lack of shelter. There's no more pain. This is salvation. And it's this good news which should make us people of good deeds who live like Jesus, suffer for one another, who die for the sake of justice, who bleed for our brother and our sister. This is what any good war movie shows, right? It's the unwillingness to leave a fellow soldier behind, a willingness to suffer alongside, to bleed for the other, for the sake of winning the victory. The church of the Lord Jesus should be a multicultural people who are willing to give of our lives to fight for each other. Which means when you hear a racial joke at work or a racial joke from a family member, you can't remain silent. You must speak up and sacrifice yourself and shed some reputational blood to lift up the dignity of the culture being oppressed. Means as you see other people being oppressed, you're willing to give your life to fight for your brother and sister. Now, the church can fight over some stupid stuff, can't it? Let's be honest. We can fight over stupid things where, where churches have split music styles, dress, right? Do we serve bagels or coffee? And where do we do it, right? Like, churches split over stupid things all the time. But we are to fight for the gospel, for this gospel that is the redemption revealed in Scripture alone that comes to a person by grace alone, leading us to faith alone in Christ alone. And we fight for the gospel, which is mercy and justice to all people in the world. We fight. We use our leverage and our skills and our gifts and our resources and our positions to fight against racism, classism, and sexism. We fight for justice, knowing that we will be victorious. Because the Lamb is on the throne. There'll be no master but Jesus. No power structures of race and class and sex. Jesus liberates his people and he sets us free. Now in general, let me say something. In general, the white church or the Western European church historically has done a good job of heightening personal holiness and personal righteousness that comes by grace through faith in Christ which is wonderful. And I'm so thankful for the many who have fought for this. And we must continue to do so as the church. But in general, it has failed miserably at a salvation that has included justice for all people. Listen to Martin Luther King in his letter from the Birmingham jail. This is a fairly long quote, but I think I need to read the whole thing. This is Martin Luther King writing from the Birmingham jail. I have been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church. 
when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed, in those days the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. That must not be true anymore. We must be a church that fights for the centrality of grace and the righteousness that comes by Christ alone, by faith alone, and we must be a church that fights for justice for all people. We need not be one or the other. Salvation includes both. The vision of victory calls us to be an army of God who will fight for each other, bleed for one another, knowing that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The last thing about this vision, it's a vision of a worshiping community. This great multitude, verse 10, crying out in a loud voice. Verse 11 to 12, falling on their faces before the throne and worshiping, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 15, before the throne, they serve him day and night in the temple. This is no facade of cross-cultural worship. This is a community bound together as a family, victorious, singing around the throne of the Lamb with all of their might and with all of their strength. A community with Christ in the center. And Jesus, the great shepherd, verse 15, is protecting and sheltering and relieving hunger and thirst and pain. This is a community so overcome by the presence of Jesus and his salvation that they are shedding tears of joy. And Jesus is tenderly wiping them away. The cross-cultural worship means that there is no one correct way to worship. One cultural way of worship is not better than another. Within Christ Central Church, even this morning, I know there are some of you that want to raise your hands. Others of you that don't. Some of you want to kneel, others that don't. Some of you prefer to remain quiet, but you feel like you should do something you don't feel comfortable doing. Now, I realize in even saying this, that I know our church has its own culture, right? We do. But hear me saying this. We want nothing more than for you to be you. We want you to be you in your culture. We want you to be free to be who you are in worship together as a community. This vision of Revelation chapter 7 takes some imagination, and imagination is something that comes natural to children, doesn't it? G.K. Chesterton says that all you have to do is say, once upon a time, and a three-year-old's mind starts racing about all that could be. And then he says, the older we get, the less we use our imagination. 
Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann claims that the key pathology of our time which seduces us all is the reduction of the imagination so that we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to do serious imaginative work. We need to imagine this absolute reality that will one day, someday, be the experience for those in Jesus Christ. Let your imaginations be captivated by this. And maybe it will infect you like a virus. You know, a virus gets in you and upon affection, it just begins to spread and affect everything. This image of a multicultural family, victorious in Jesus, saved from personal sin, worldly injustice, thrust into being a worshiping community, prayerfully will infect each and every one of us, everywhere we go, with everyone we are with. I've prayed this, and we'll continue to pray this for the church. God, would you infect us with your gospel? Would you infect us with this vision? To God, would you infect us every Sunday morning so that we leave this place spreading the gospel and spreading this vision everywhere we go? When the nightmares of temptation and evil and injustice come our way, when we want to stop loving one another and learning one another, we want to stop fighting for each other and we lose our voice and our hearts of worship, we can stand strong. And know that this day of Revelation chapter 7 is more true than anything that will come our way. It is hard to be cross-cultural. But our gospel and this vision of a family, a victorious army, and a worshiping community around the throne of the Lamb who will shepherd us and love us for all eternity must fuel and compel us and help us to accomplish the vision that God's given us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would do something that we can't make manufacture. And God, I pray that, that this vision of, of a big Jesus, of a big Savior, a salvation that includes the individual and the corporate, this vision of every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne, a family, a victorious army, and a worshiping community would captivate and grab hold of our imaginations that as we leave this place and we enter into a, a hard world and broken and fallen world, that it would be more true to us than what we experience out there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.